When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Book Ride Podcast. We're recording on Thursday, July 9th, 2020. As always, as most of the time, 99% of the time, I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. Coming from, coming from to you, coming to from <laughs> you to from bookride.com. In whichever way that makes sense to anyone, uh, Rebecca, here we are back again talking about Hello. news. Mm-hmm. Um, not a lot of new book talk this week, kind of a fallow period. We're going to enter um, one thing that happened. I'm not sure if we talked about this on the show in various ways, our own you know, glimpse into the world of books and reading on the publishing uh, business side is the advertising piece. We sell advertising on the mm-hmm. site, on the podcast, whatever. And as things, as, as the pandemic hit in full... Um, or maybe as people realized the pandemic was hitting in full in middle March. Um, a lot of those late March, April, May titles got bumped back, postponed, indefinitely, you know, suspended. And then over the next four to six weeks after, thereafter, they started getting reallocated. And there's a bunch. So really, May and June are typically really busy times for us for advertising. And then July and August are pretty fallow on the whole, just because mm-hmm. how the cycles goes. But all that's got pushed back. There were not as many May and June books coming out, so not as much advertising. So historically speaking, very, very um, light for us. But then we're seeing huge July and August where stuff is really booked up. Like today, for example, you're going to hear multiple ad spots for external sponsors, which maybe you ha- if you've noticed, you pay attention, has been more internal stuff of late because they haven't been sold. So really up through July 4th, it's been pretty slow. But now there's a whole bunch of stuff coming out. There's a new Charlie Kaufman book I was just looking at that, uh, today that's coming out. There's a David Mitchell coming out. Just got me thinking again about how we have this weird delayed summer book season. I mean, stuff did come mm-hmm. out. Don't get me wrong. Um, but the Bolton coming book, that Bolton book coming out, and then this Mary Trump book, we're going to say something more here a little bit, got moved up to next week. Um, we're having a delayed cycle, um, which is interesting. And I, and I think one reason it's felt like a weird year, it, because it's maybe the weirdest Because it's been a weird through, year. <laughs> but even the normal cadences of book publishing, which I, I think in hindsight didn't need to change. You know, we talked about this before where book Sales are up 2% for the year, mm-hmm. uh, bafflingly, but also maybe not surprisingly, is that people don't, you know, whatever entertainment money they have to spend, they're not spending on movies and going to theaters and traveling and things like that. So books are available there. People are at home a lot more. It's something you do at home. So a lot of things add up for that to make sense. But we're having a very strange kind of, you know, a backlog, a, a traffic jam, a slow-moving traffic jam as things come out. And I'll be curious to see what, if any, books really break through um, that's like, we talk about vanishing half, kind of breaking mm-hmm. through the lit fix cycle, the Bolton book breaking through on a, you know, a, a meta politics cycle. We haven't seen a, correct me if I'm wrong, kind of a commercial crossover hit yet. Have we seen one that like no. the book clubs well, are picking yeah. up? Cause I guess the book clubs aren't meeting. So maybe that makes sense. Right. Yeah. There hasn't been a, like where the crawdads sing of, or even anything. Which is unfair, that. but yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. Nothing. There hasn't been like a big book club mm-hmm. book of the year. I think that's also been, I mean, not only the pandemic, but also, 
affected by the political moment yeah. that we're in and yeah. folks are like of the people that I know who are in book clubs which is maybe like a, a surprisingly small percentage like I most of the people in my life care about books in some way but the book club representation is relatively low their book clubs have like pivoted to focus on right. anti-racist titles for a little while and if they're meeting they're doing social distancing or they're meeting on zoom so just like the focus in books like if there's a big book of the year so far it has to be ibram x kendi's how to be an anti-racist um but not a big commercial fiction or lit fic commercial crossover i think the vanishing half has the potential to do that we were just talking yesterday about um yeah jesse's new book called descendant kingdom it's coming out Transcendent Kingdom. Boy, we both can't get that fall. straight. I got it. I screwed it up yesterday. You screwed it up today. We're going to get We right. talked about something else called Descendants on <laughs> yesterday's call. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it, yeah. Uh, anyway, Transcendent Kingdom, much better title than Descendant <laughs> Kingdom. I'd read that that's one why, too. Whatever yeah, Jesse's writing, I'm. I'm that's true. Yeah, Jesse can, you know, rewrite the phone book and mm-hmm. I will pick it up. Um, but when we were, I think that has some potential to be big this fall. It would be big in a normal year so we'll see what happens to it in covid and then um yeah i I don't know how many of the delayed titles it was actually necessary to delay publishers i think were responding to realizing they weren't going to people in the office they didn't know what was going to happen there some of the wholesale uh, pathways were either closed or significantly diminished and there are a lot of books that are printed overseas and so like what was that Mm going to look like um were books that are printed in china going to get here so um, probably some of them it really was necessary and some was preemptive i've now started to see books that were supposed to come out this fall a couple titles getting bumped to like march of next year sure yeah um yeah, where like, I, okay, like maybe you don't want to have to compete with a pandemic and a racial uprising and well, an election. and all the books that are backed up from the spring, like you're getting that echo effect at some, you <laughs> yeah. know, this fallow period where things there was fewer books than would come out normally is going to stack up somewhere and fall mm-hmm. back, fall back, fall back. You know, we talked about before, we don't know what was going on from the acquisition sort of production pipeline. Like while books weren't being released, was there still the same cycle in terms of acquiring books, editing books, getting prepared? You know, the cycles typically are so long mm-hmm. that would we see an echo an echo trough, I guess, in like a year or two as those cycles were those books that would have been development over the last three months or, you know, those first six weeks, is it short enough to matter? Um, I really don't know. I think it was prudent at the time. I Don't don't get me wrong. I think it was prudent yeah, at the time to yeah. delay. I just think in hindsight, you you know, if you had to go back and do it, get in the DeLorean, um, maybe you would have told some people about, um, you know, coughing on each other in December. But that's, you know, the, the next thing you do on DeLorean <laughs> as a publishing person was, was maybe say, you know what, we can go ahead and publish these things. I mean, because even Amazon was delayed, right? I mean, that's the canary in the coal mine for me about like, whether books could in people's hands, even Amazon was delayed, um, mm-hmm. you know, multiple weeks for new books coming out or just books. They, they deprecated the importance of, of books there for a while. Um, and now we're back up to speed. So I don't know. It'd be interesting to see as we proceed through the rest of the year, if the, if the book sales uh, continue. I, I, would, uh, I want to have a little follow up actually related to how be anti-racist, mm. but let's do a sponsor real quick first. Had a question in the email. Um, I think either you and I kind of did a drive-by of mm. talking about how white fragility and how to be anti-racist were kind of neck and neck for the book people were buying in this particular moment. And one of us said, you know, I, I'm not sure we th- threw shade necessarily. I would say, you know, white fragility is written by a white woman, right? Robin DiAngelo, by mm-hmm. all accounts, is a really good book. I haven't read it. I think 
again, I didn't go back to listen, but this person's question is that wh- why were you guys concerned about that? My point is, and it was brought home to me in looking at the Publishers Weekly stats, that White mm-hmm. Fragility is the best-selling book about race right now, which I think yeah. probably shouldn't be the case, <laughs> right? I, I think that's yeah, not what that's... you want. It's not a bad book. It's not. I'm sure it does everything you want, but one of the things we're trying to get at is own voices, people who are black, people who are people of color, people who are indigenous, um, people who are trans. I mean, that, that seems to have come to the fore. Black trans lives has um, mm-hmm. become more and more to the forefront of the movement as we're seeing it right now. Read those writers, right? There's no reason that Why Fragility should be reading How to Be Anti-Racist, which is like the SEO title of what you're searching <laughs> for, and yet White Fragility yeah, I, is outselling it. I, I just don't think that's what we want necessarily. Right, I think so it, whatever that I, means. Yeah, I think it points to... like. It's very revealing yeah. that it's predominantly white people who are out there needing to read books about anti-racism and that the one that white people feel most comfortable picking up first or that are they're picking mm-hmm. up in the greatest volume is the one that's by a white person. And I think it's probably generous to say that you think it does all the things that it needs to do. Like, I hope it does. I have not read White Fragility Um I'm not sure. I just, the, I'm assuming that's fine. <laughs> I, I'm not sure about yeah, any, anything. Yeah. Um, like, it's in the moment where we're talking about, like, wh- whose voices we need to be listening to as we learn about the impact of racism. Like, white people can talk about what racism is as a concept and a construct and a thing that needs to be dismantled, and we absolutely should. But we cannot understand the experience of it. And there's real value to come from reading and listening to voices who have experienced living inside white supremacy as a person of color, specifically as a black person, and who understand both the structural and the lived experience. Um, Yeah. Yeah. And if you're trying to be activist with where your dollars go, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the white lady who wrote a book about (laughs) racism is not the, um, the most effective use of that. And from a certain like point no of sh- view, yeah. I'm sure it has its own, again, I haven't read it, so all caveats aside about that, but there is a place as, as a white person reading about wanting to do the work, assuming you're going to with good spirit mm-hmm. um, and good intention, to read about someone who's looking at the situation from the same point of view have. That, that, that is, I think, there is, a, there is use to that, saying, okay, I've been there, yeah, yeah, here's I the think... way to think about it. but don't make that the only thing, that's all I'm right. saying. Right, I was going to say, like, the if only you're... Point of view you're <laughs> yeah, my two-sentence pitch for it is like, if you're going to read one book about this right. work, I think it should be Ibram Kendi's book, but you shouldn't just read one book about this no. work. And there's room then for other for a multitude of voices. And that's mm-hmm. really, I think, the most effective approach. Yeah. And, you know, black people aren't a monolith, um, like all people. And yeah. so um, how to be ra- anti-racist, I think if you had to pick one, you probably would have a hard time doing better than that. But you mm-hmm. could do as well. You know, by reading any number of books. Um, yeah. And I'll say like, I mean, right now I'm reading Big Friendship by Anne Friedman and Amina Tussaud, who mm-hmm. host the Call Your Girlfriend podcast. And Anne is white and Amina Tussaud is black. And they talk about it in the book, which the book has been, you know, written and ready for publication for a while. It comes out July 14th. So like tomorrow when you're listening to this. <laughs> um, but they talk about like they've been friends for a decade and what how they have addressed experiences of racism and like the subtle um, internalized racism that like Anne doesn't realize that she has, but that shows up in their friendship and how they navigate that on an individual level from both perspectives. And that's really useful to see too. So it like, I'm glad to see this popping up in places that aren't even specifically books about racism. Mm. Um, and I hope that we'll get more of that 
also. So anyway, to address that, and it, it was, it was, um, I thought important just to mention that's mm-hmm. what, if, if there was a glancing um, shot at white fragility, it wasn't necessarily that there was anything wrong with that book itself, but the, that it's outpacing how to buy anti-racist is, you know, that's worth, I think that's worth talking about mm-hmm. for a minute. Yeah. Right? And there, I have not taken a deep dive into the criticism around white fragility, but I have seen that there is some. So if you're wondering about like picking a book for yourself or rounding out your anti-racist reading, I would recommend a Google into Mm -hmm. some of the criticism around that. Yeah. Um, So I guess let's see, we're going around here. Let's drop, let's jump back up to the top of the agenda here. Um, The Trump, Mary Trump's book, which we were talking about last week in the context of lawsuits, um, they've moved, uh, SNS has moved the, the, um, publication date up two weeks. They mm-hmm. say because it's of demand, I cannot keep the title of this book straight. It's too, enough is too much is never too enough. much and never enough, too much and never enough. I cannot, it, I'm just thinking of it as the Mary I'm Trump just... <laughs> book. So I'm sure if you Google that, you'll find what you, uh, you're looking Yeah, I'm just for. looking at it right now. <laughs> um, they say it's because of demand. I have a tin hat theory. Do you want to hear what it is? Mm, absolutely. Yeah, I know. I, that's that's a rhetorical question. Of course, <laughs> wants to hear the tin hat theory. She wants to do the tin hat podcast. Um, tin hats to the left of me. Tin hats. Yeah, to the right. that's right. Uh, you know, one tin one tin hat rode away. Uh, I, I know, as you grew up in the in the you know a benignly white Protestant church, you know that song. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're trying to avoid future lawsuits. Get it out the door. Oh. Interesting. Stop, you know, stop me before you sue again, right? You know, like, mm-hmm. and so I wonder if the the books are ready to go. the 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 iron seems hot for it. They were leaking excerpts all over the place. There's not. Oh, they really. There's were. only a couple of um, delectable nuggets here. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I don't even know what my again. Don't I, I don't really want to do this too much, but like, there is a certain terrible pleasure in reading some of these anecdotes. I have to say. Um, mm-hmm. and particularly the the one that jumped out to me as being so like inevitably true, like almost has to be true, that Trump paid someone to take his SATs because yep. of course he couldn't have gotten into Penn on his own. Mayor, I, I just assumed it was a big fat check, right? That was always my assumption mm-hmm. about how I got into Wharton. But even even in elite public schools have some standards for academics, generally speaking. And um, apparently, if this is to be believed. Uh, Trump himself didn't believe he could clear that meager hurdle. Even with a check, he needed an assist um, to to transfer to Penn as an undergraduate. But I I just think it's like the litigiousness of it. um, People are going to get tired of hearing about the lawsuits. Just just release the damn book already. Yeah, I think it's probably both. Like it's currently the number one bestselling book on Amazon. It's ahead of John Bolton and the publisher according to the CNN piece from a couple days ago, had already printed 75,000 copies. But there's an interesting quote here that they're attributing in the early release to high demand and extraordinary interest in this book. Yeah. Extraordinary interest can be all kinds <laughs> right. of yes, yes, things. Yes. That's like saying a person of interest in ongoing investigation. It's like, yeah, well, like, you're more this, than interested, I'd say. The, the nuggets... In, of things that have been getting leaked, it, it is really interesting, not only because she's so close to yeah. him and has these up-close stories, but also she's a licensed clinical psychologist. Fascinating. And a, a lot of the time, like, you know, when psychologists or psychiatrists get asked about Trump in the news, they have to say, like, well, I have not treated mm-hmm. this person, so I can't diagnose them. Um, but she has experienced him up close, and she's intimately familiar with, like, what the criteria and defining features are of many psychological 
and you know mental health issues so it, it seems like she's walking an interesting ethical yeah. line mm-hmm. by relating these experiences to her knowledge there um, but it's probably like the closest we're going to get to a straight up like psychological profile and that's right. um very compelling i mean there is a there is there is sort of the i guess not so unbelievable belief that many I'll throw uh, that I have, for example, that were you to know the full truth, it would be as bad, if not worse than what you think, right, about this dude and what he's mm-hmm. done in the course of his life. And so there's a certain confirmation bias, <laughs> a certain con- there is a definite <laughs> confirmation bias in this sort of thing. Um, and you're right. I think the one we played this game a while ago about if you got one Trump insider, tell all which one do you want? And, you know, oh, yeah. we came with Melania, of course, like that's uh, and judging by did we cover we didn't really cover the story, but like because it's not really a book one. But apparently that whole scene about her not moving to Washington initially after the inauguration and staying in right, New York yeah. was part of a prenup negotiation strategy, a renegotiating their prenuptial mm-hmm. agreement. So like <laughs> she, you know, she got the goods, it seems to me. But this is I probably so. as close as we're going to get, because I don't think Mary Trump has anything to lose and a lot to gain by by yeah. publishing this presumably all of melania's prenups are accompanied by ironclad ndas yeah right i mean to, <laughs> that that i thought that was taken as right but absolutely right <laughs> <laughs> absolutely right so we'll see i mean we we get i realize in the bolton and Tr- mary trump books we got kind of the one two of the trump hit piece books we get the policy stuff and the personal stuff right mm-hmm. like those are the two angles on which these, you know, we've gotten a lot of policy ones too, but like the yeah. insider saying that he doesn't know that Finland is a part of Russia and all this other stuff, plus the lying, you know, he's dumb and a liar is kind of the both thing. And, you know, that those two things together. And again, I'm way past the point of thinking this is going to change anybody's mind who's already in Trump porn. I'm not about that. But I think for the historical record purposes, you know, like once, you know, mm-hmm. in 10 years or 12 years or whatever, we want to have this stuff available to, to to show the people who survived all of this and in the future that this was out there. Like we knew, we we knew, right? We knew what the deal was. Right. Um, yeah. And I think that's and, important to know. And I think you're right. It probably won't make any difference, but. I guess this feels like a different kind of book in a meaningful way than all of the political insider books that like, if you don't care about the policy stuff, because you think that all the policy stuff is like highfalutin Washington insiders doing things and that, of course, they want to make themselves look smart and denigrate Trump, those books, like you can write those books off. But um, if there are folks in the base still that like you know, identify as like, he gets me or like, I could be like that guy, like I could get rich too, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think, well, I don't know, maybe it's just a desire to have something to be hopeful for. But part of me wants to hope that like reading about these very personal misdeeds and like, real issues of personal morality and the ways that he has treated members of his family would want would cause like people to want to put some distance between themselves and identifying with him in that way um, yeah i i, I uh, wish it's you probably were right. too much to hope right. for i think again i i had done such a good job over the last three years of not getting into like the polling and electoral strategy junk mm. and so indulge me for 90 seconds about this i think if there is a voter that maybe is swayable 
by a story about, say, cheating on, you know, hiring someone to, to, to take your SATs. One thing that polling has shown over the last three years is the suburban, college-educated white voter, specifically white female mm-hmm. voter, who may have voted for Trump before is really not interested in voting for yeah. Trump again. And this is the kind of story you might imagine that kind of a voter really being sympathetic to. I went to college. I took the SATs. Right. I tried to get into these sorts of things. And that really hits them in their home, right? Is sort of mm-hmm. cheating them or, out of a Right, spot or my or, kid is trying to go to yeah, business school. Right, right, and, right, yeah. right. Assuming yeah. they themselves aren't trying to cheat, and we saw all that kind of stuff happen right. with the, the athletics admissions um, fabrications earlier. But I think there are most of us who grew up uh, go, wanting to go to college and needing to take the SATs to, to get a scholarship or get into the school of your choice or whatever else it might be, a, wouldn't have had the funds to, to pay someone to take it or B, even considered it? I guess that's the part that always strikes me. Is like, Wait, people paid? I was so naive, I guess, um, back then that um, I, I wouldn't have even considered it as something as someone would do. Uh, but I, I wonder if that marginal voter, if they were you know, going back and forth at all, it's like, mm-hmm. you know what? Even, even my privileged self is getting cheated by this guy. <laughs> that's right. the last job, right. uh, which is... They should have been convinced way before then. But if they weren't, Agreed. maybe this would, would maybe. do something. Maybe. Yeah, I just maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Maybe, maybe, maybe. All maybe. right. Where do you want to go next? Uh, lots of you interesting know, stuff to go Let's with do, here. I think, interesting sort of not quite follow-up, but I guess related yeah. to book organization policy stuff. We were talking, you know, for a couple weeks about what was going on at the National Book Critics Circle and um, really – poor handling of a statement that never actually got made (laughs) about Mm. Black Lives Matter that ultimately, I think, resulted from not having um, a very diverse or inclusive board. And in a different corner of the industry, the ABA, the American Booksellers Association, um, the president of the board, um, Jamie Fioco, I believe is how you pronounce it, um, she has announced this week um, that the ABA has voted to, or it will be voting um, to change their bylaws to increase the size of the ABA board and then to um, require that a, a minimum number of board seats go to black and indigenous people of color um, so that let's see, they're increasing the board of directors to 13 and committing to a minimum of four of those 13 seats being held by BIPOC folks, of which a minimum of two will be black people Mm. specifically, Um, which I think is an awesome move. Um, Folks of color are underrepresented all the way around publishing, as we've talked about ad nauseum on here, and um, specifically in the world of indie book sellings. It's very cool um, that they're taking this proactive step, like having people of color on your board and at all levels of your organization represented makes policies better. It makes your work better and more well-rounded, and it makes other people feel safe coming into that space. Um, That's really cool to see Mm -hmm. them taking those proactive steps. So that's my happy like tip of the hat to the ABA this week. May these efforts succeed. Yeah, and I, you know, structurally, there's a couple interesting going on. One is, you know, having a target, right, that's public, mm-hmm. right, and presumably will be, if not enforceable by the public, at least held accountable by the public's gaze or the people that's interested in seeing whether or not they do this. And the second, and this is something that's new, and, you know, in the context of what we do, I think is new. We've thought for a long time about having people of color in the company and contributors, mm-hmm. you know, 
increasing that over time. We're a small company, so we don't hire that often. But like as we do, we want to make sure that we're getting closer to where we want to be. But one thing that's new, I think, for a lot of people and will be new for us, and we're still thinking about these sorts of things, and to see it here is centering blackness in a discussion of, of mm-hmm. people of color and BIPOC. It's saying it's not just um, kind of a there, – there's a special place within this underrepresentation that we need to hold a space for um, specifically and especially. And that, that piece is new to, I think, most kinds of organizations, even mm-hmm. ones that were thinking about this ahead of time. But um, – Maybe, maybe this is this can be kind of a template to say this is how it can be done going forward. You know, they're accelerating the process by opening up seats. So one thing this bylaw is doing is like we're going to add some seats so we can fill them immediately rather right. than go through the election cycle and you know wait for people to retire or give up their spot or something else like this. We're going to do this thing. We're going to play catch up, I guess, for lack of a better term, um, and, and circumvent our normal structural things, which would be impediment to change just because it takes longer and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Um, and the length of time maybe would attenuate the energy around the movement now, though we're on day 39 of protests in Portland here. So I, I, I'm not betting against the continuing momentum at this point, uh, but it does that too. It's like, okay, let's make sure we do this while we and the rest of us feel the urgency so that we don't fall back into complacency, which happens, right? That happens. Yeah, and so that, that's it does. important and, to see. And I, I was just sort of double checking the math here that four out of those 13 seats yeah. will give them about 30% of people on their board, just over 30% being people of color, which is just under um, the national sort of what equity looks like mm-hmm. nationwide, but two out of 13 being specifically black people is just over 15% and black people make up 13% of about 13% of the US population. So it really puts them there yep. um, with like specific racial equity around um, what you were saying, that it's a particular thing to be a black person mm-hmm. in the United States and having that experience be represented really matters. Um, I'm really happy to see yeah, this. Really happy to see it too. Let's do another sponsor break and then uh, we'll come back. You know, if we were still doing annotated, um, this story would be, you know, a, a good this this person would be a good one to to build an episode around. After let's see, sixty years mm-hmm. in the publishing business, um, Nan Talese. I've never said this name out loud. Have you? Do you know? Is that how I've you heard say it's Talese. Yeah. Talese. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I maybe I've heard. Um, is retiring, um, boy, and I don't even know how to to talk about her. She's had her own imprint at Doubleday since 1990, which is a good long while. But she started as a copy editor at Random House in 1959, moved around from from different places, uh, Simon & Schuster, uh, and I guess came back to Random House later. What what a career. Um, mm-hmm. Really, the, tw- the late 20th century and early 21st century, in a nutshell, a pioneer in a lot of different ways. Um, I, I guess probably before Madeline McIntosh would name CEO of Random House, probably the most powerful woman in publishing, I would say. I can't think of another. I think so, yeah. Yeah, and I'm not sure. It may not even close, but, you know, she acquired and edited Schindler's List. We're looking at The Handmaid's Tale. We're doing Pat Conroy. Um, mm-hmm. We're looking at Ian McEwen. Just a whole bunch of people that came to define literary, uh, what do we call it, upmarket? fiction yep. <laughs> um of the last 60 years 
Um, I'm sure she's got stories to tell. <laughs> um, and maybe we'll have to, maybe she'll come on to, on this show to talk for 45 minutes about. But, maybe she'll write a tell all memoir. Yeah, about if she a cares, woman in I, publishing. I'd be fa- fascinating to know um, what, you know, what she has seen, what she had heard. I would imagine it's everything you could imagine she's seen and heard. Um, I guess she was at Double Day. What was that book that was, was it FSG? Was that the Hot House book? Do you remember that? Oh, that yeah. was a memoir about the the um, fast times at FSG High, so to speak, right. <laughs> of the of the, of the uh, wild and woolly early days of FSG, like seventies and eighties in literary mm-hmm. publishing too. Um, nice blurbs from Atwood and McEwen and others uh, about her. Seem like a again, this is what people say when someone retired. I'm, I'm sure she has her detractors, like anyone who's been powerful in publishing and probably as a woman for as long as she's been. Yeah. Um, but it seems like um, a beloved mainstay in the publishing firmament, um, an important person. I think the kind of person that rank and file, even book nerds probably don't even know to know, um, but has been an important part of the publishing mm-hmm. world um, for a long time. Is there anything else to say? I'm not sure. I don't know that much about her, frankly. I mean, yeah, I, I knew the name. I, I knew she'd been around forever. Um, but more than that, it's hard to know. So, so it is in publishing professional land, which you can be really important and influential. Mm-hmm. But the people who read the books, you know, never, never, you know, the Andrew yeah, Wiley's I mean, of the world. You know. That's one of the interesting things that makes books different from, you know, like movies or yeah music is that most of us could name like at least a couple directors that we like you might be able to name a couple producers in the music scene Mm -hmm. um, especially if you're familiar with the world of hip-hop that like have left particular marks on their industries and on those the the art that comes out of what they make Um, but most folks have no idea, like couldn't name the editor no. of their fav- their favorite book or, you know, as we've talked about, like most people have no idea what an imprint is or like even that Nan A. Talese listed on the um, spine of the book was an actual still living person. Yeah, yeah. well, <laughs> because, because it could be Knopf, you know? I mean, that's, that's what happens, right? Yeah, I mean, right, yeah, it's, yeah, they just have no idea. So I'm sure she has really interesting uh-huh. stories. We were talking on the staff Slack about um, how PRH is undergoing big changes, yeah. but, you know, um, Sunny Meta just died in, in December, like very end of December. So for 2020, um, a big year for PRH to be adjusting from that and then having Nantalise stepping down. Um, there's no indication of like, and not that we would expect them to, but like there's no sort of indication here about like, was this a planned yeah. retirement or is there pressure to, you know, step down and create some space for other people to, you know, sort of move into this area and have their own imprints or be these bigger voices um, at Doubleday and inside Penguin Random House. It'll be interesting to see what follows on. Um, I was saying privately that I hope it's a mix. Like, I hope that she was like, you know what, 60 years is great. <laughs> Like, I've done enough, and now I'm tired, and I'm going to rest. Um, and also, I would like to know that there is internal pressure at the publishers to um, to have some folks who have had long and illustrious careers um, be at least willing to consider stepping away and creating space for other voices to come in. So we don't know, um, but certainly an interesting life and just a huge, impressive bookshelf of books that she worked on. Yeah, I'd be curious to know... Um... Uh, I think it, Maya Mavji was she the one? Was it was Meta Knopf Doubleday? Was that his chair? Yeah, Sunny Meta um, was that. Knopf. And I think mm-hmm. Maya Mavji is the person that's taken that over. She's now the president publisher. I, I don't remember seeing this announcement. 
um, I wonder if Talie's imprint will endure or it will her, her her list will fall back under you know one of the other random house yeah, um, imprints it'd be it'd be fascinating to see how that goes or is it going to be like a Kanaf um, yeah, kind of an imprint right, where it goes it, it, it endures and becomes a brand of its own well yeah now we must be like we're in super inside baseball land um Reagan Arthur succeeded yeah. Sonny oh, Bennett's that's position right. that's right but, we talked about that yeah yeah as a um yeah, as the new publisher of Knopf. So that's interesting, too, to see Maya Mavji. Uh, this says she's president publisher of Knopf. Oh, of Double the Day. Knopf Doubleday Publishing Group. Oh, under, under which um, Knopf. Un- under God. which, yeah. Even we <laughs> who have to navigate this stuff, it's hard to know. Right, we've seen the org charts. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, yeah. Uh, good Lord. Um, okay, so I'm not sure. So maybe there's, maybe there's a seat there. Maybe there's room for another publishing mm-hmm. imprint. Maybe not. Speaking of room for another publishing imprint, you yes. see what I did there? Yes. That was a good segue. Yeah. Um, Phoebe Robinson is getting her own imprint at Plume, which is an imprint of Random House. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> it's imprints all the way down. Um, it's going to be called um, Tiny Reparations Books with Robinson as founder. Um, so her own publicist is going to be the publicist at the book. Um, <laughs> it's also hat in hand coming along with her new production company called Tiny Reparations. Not too silly to think about mm-hmm. those two things anymore as these things go. The imprint is committed to publishing complex, honest, and humorous work that only reflects the current conversation, but also pushes forward. Highly curated focus on literary fiction, literary nonfiction, essay collections that highlight and play unique and diverse voices um next book uh her next book six feet apart set for (laughs) fall 2021 um it looks like plume acquired that doesn't say that it's for this new imprint i think this is great really looking forward to this but we've been doing this long enough to know (laughs) we see this happen like you get someone gets their imprint in like I don't know. What's the most interesting book published by kind of a name coming from really like an author, personality, celebrity? Like we've done the Sarah Jessica Parker. We've done Anthony Bourdain. Like I, I'm just not sure. I, I hope this one breaks out. And I hope this one has signature yeah. things that go alongside with it. I just can't think of one off the top of my head. And I was like, yeah, well, there was a big fanfare around the celebrity getting their own imprint. And look at all these awesome books that came out of it. I, I just haven't seen it this far. Uh, if you can mm-hmm. think of one, I'm missing because, as you know, I can't even keep the imprint straight. Maybe there's one that was a big <laughs> deal that was curated and, and, and um, handmaidened um, by, by someone else. But I just can't think of one. So as excited as I am for this, this is a playbook we've seen before, and I hope it has different results. Is this a structure that functions to do the thing we were just talking about of someone taking over Sonny Meadows' place or Nanny Talese's place? Um mm-hmm. I just don't know, Rebecca. What do you, what do you well, think? Well, I mean, it's impossible to know without knowing, like, what's the budget for this imprint? How much are they going to get to spend yeah. on new books, not only on acquiring them, but on marketing them? Like, and we don't know that retroactively about, like, the Sarah Jessica Parker imprint yeah. or the Bourdain imprint. Like, it's nice to lend the name. Or I think publishers think it's nice to lend the name. Like, oh, Phoebe Robinson is famous. And so if we put her name on some right. books, people will buy them. But that forgets that most readers as we have well established don't know what an imprint is <laughs> and david robinson's so, a name but is the name that's going to move into units like it rick Riordan puts his name on the books that you know get pu- that's one mm-hmm. i guess that's a good example yeah. that 
I have books from the Rick Reardon's Presents in my house, and a lot of them are really good, and those seem to have moved some units and, re- and really mm. made a difference. So that maybe I, I just undercut myself a little bit in thinking about that one. James Patterson is not just an imprint, but like a subsidiary, sort of like... When he puts his name on those. Puts his name on those, and that's something you didn't see from the Sarah Jessica Parker and Anthony Bourdain's. I don't know if it's the right move or not, um, but, you know, who writes the checks? Who gets to fail? Who gets to lose a million dollars on an advance, I think, is an interesting question for these sorts of mm-hmm. situations. Um, if Phoebe Robinson wants to sign um, the next Ya Jesse for a $7 million advance and it doesn't turn into Ya Jesse, does this imprint go away? Uh, I, you know, that that's the kind of things of how these things work. I think it's better to see it than not. Um, I guess... The related story that I think matters a little bit more. God, I'm on a roll today. Simon <laughs> Schuster naming Dana, uh, Dana Kennedy, new publisher, formerly mm-hmm. of the New York Times and the administrator of the Pulitzer Prizes, will run the namesake imprint of one of the country's largest book publishers. So this is the other version. This is you're not taking a new publisher. You know, you're not creating a new publisher for a specific person. You're saying we're going to put someone um, in this job uh, that is a you know one of the thrones. SNS is one of the thrones in publishing, and one mm-hmm. of the, you know one of the Game of Thrones is one of the thrones of the Westeros that is publishing. Um, and she's a black woman who's you know kind of related to publishing, but also hasn't come up through. Uh, you know, she didn't start out as like an editorial intern or something like that. I don't. I don't think she's been a reporter and mm-hmm. a senior writer at the time. So she's in. She's in the world of arts and letters. Um, but in looking for someone to fill this particular throne. In expanding the pool and um, diversifying the pool of where you can look, uh, she's one. So I, I think this these are two approaches to the same motive and the same goal, and I think yeah. that's good. I guess I would put more of my chips on the Kennedy naming than the Phoebe Robinson naming. As, as a way forward, because it feels more structural, I guess, is what I'm trying to That's say. That's what I was going to say. Is like, this is real. This is giving real structural power yeah, right. to someone who will then have the ability to make changes at all throughout the organization. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, also sort of buried in this New York Times piece about Dana Kennedy coming to this position is that she began the conversation about maybe going to work for Simon & Schuster a few years ago with Jonathan Karp, who at the time mm. was the... Um, who at the time was the publisher of the SNS imprint. And now he is replacing Carolyn Reedy, who right, died earlier this right, year from Simon right, & Schuster. Right, right, and, right. and I think we talked about Carolyn Reedy passing, mm. but we hadn't seen an announcement of who was taking her place. Yeah, right. um, so Dana Kennedy, yeah, she'll be the third woman and the first black person to hold this position. Mm. Um, I, you know, That's a glass ceiling that should have been broken. Um, glad to see it happening now yeah i wonder if and then she is is she the highest ranking black woman in publishing at this black person writ large i mean chris jackson Mm. at one world has his own imprint over there which has a pretty good catalog um again i don't pay as as much attention to the palace intrigue of the upper echelons uh, of publishing as as i once was sort of interested in Mm -hmm. um but i'd be be very very curious to know Um, but certainly among the few um, the third yeah. woman and the first black person to hold this yep. particular um, position. Well, and the well. fact that we can sit here and name one other black person who runs an imprint at a major publisher and we're like wondering. <laughs> yeah, I mean, or the, the publisher, <laughs> publisher, like a group, right? right. You know, mm-hmm. I guess the difference between the Kennedy and the Phoebe Robinson is this kind of position that Kennedy has is the kind that can make a Phoebe Robinson imprint, right? Phoebe right. Robinson can't make it, I wouldn't think, 
you know, a new imprint for someone else, whereas Candy mm-hmm. can't. So that just gives you a sense right there of the structural influence this kind of a position has. And sometimes it's hard to know. Senior vice president and publisher, what exactly does that mean? I, 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 the, the, every publishing house is different. Even, even oh, yeah. and titles is, are different. It's just so hard to know. Exactly. And it is of the, it's the senior vice president and publisher of the namesake yes, imprint. Yes, yes, so, yes, yes. Yeah. Not of like the whole. Not CEO of Simon and Schuster. That's right. always confusing when <laughs> the publishing house has the same name of one of its imprints, especially if that's that's flagship imprints. I think they all do, right? Uh, HMH has HMH. Um, Hachette has Hachette books. Um, SNS has SNS. Random House mm-hmm. has Random House. Im- Though I don't think weirdly, Random House, the imprint of Random House, doesn't get. I'm not sure it's like. One of the top couple, I, I think Knopf is probably a higher prestige yeah. than mm-hmm. Random Mouse. Weird, I didn't. It is, really yeah. Um, but those those were <laughs> interesting to see these things falling, and I think people looking at what can we do, mm-hmm. how can this work? Um, this this interesting. It sounds like she was approached quite a couple years ago yeah um, to take this job but she had only been at the Pulitzer so long and she didn't want to leave them high and dry which I think is a super high character move just to really how these things go it Um, really really and it also points to like at the highest echelons in publishing or really in any industry it can take a long time for turnover to happen because there are so few positions and if you have to wait for Mm -hmm. someone to vacate the position before you put someone else who represents a different community into it it can just it can take a while but glad to i am glad to hear that this conversation was already in the works which like i am here for of the moment reactions Mm -hmm. to this movement that's happening and people like if you're finally realizing that you should have black people in your company please go hire some Um, but it's great to know that um, there were conversations at the highest levels of publishing happening about this before yeah um okay let's take a break and take about talk about the last story that i'm gonna have energy to talk about (gasps) uh, today (laughs) this is one of those stories that probably you know, or I think there's a good chance. Um, I think a lot of times people listening to the show maybe haven't heard about some of the stories we talk mm-hmm. about, um, and that's why they tune in. Sometimes they want to hear us talk about things that do bubble up into you know mainstream culture or even mainstream book culture. Um, and this one has in a lot of different ways. It's this letter that was published in Harper's Magazine and co-signed by a whole bunch of people, some of which you've heard of, most of which you haven't. Um basically asking for or riling against um a what what they perceive as a trend a habit on the left to i guess overreact this is what they're saying that's not what i'm saying overreact shame quote unquote cancel um censor and all the air quotes in the world there mm-hmm. um people who have said something that the progressive left doesn't like. I'm just putting it in a nutshell because this is a bit of a slippery argument being made here because it doesn't actually say any particular thing about a specific issue. Um, it's more saying, you know, it's a threat to, to liberal culture and liberal discourse writ large, lowercase l, not just yeah. uppercase l, liberal discourse. If you can say stuff and people say you should be fired or shut up or you should get that promotion or we're not going to carry your books anymore or we're not going to cover your books anymore and like that that's that's too that's a bridge too far we shouldn't be doing that that is doing the very thing and it, it makes the move i don't think we've come up with the rule 
that you know the the rhetorical move of now mentioning Trump is kind of like mentioning Hitler was on the internet like five <laughs> years ago. Like eventually you're just going to do it, and it's a sign yeah. you're overreaching on your argument. Well, I can't remember what that it was like Rule Forty Seven or something like that. Um, anyway, we've gotten to that point. It's like saying the thing you are doing that we're riling gets is like something like Trump would do is supposed to be like <gasps> no, no, you know, like you're supposed to have that kind of like visceral reaction to that sort of thing, right? It's saying it you are being intolerant by having these kinds of reactions books withdrawn i'm going to read some editors are fired for running controversial pieces books are withdrawn for alleged inauthenticity journalists are barred from writing on certain topics professors are investigated for quoting works of literature in class a researcher a researcher is fired for circulating a peer-reviewed academic study and the heads of organizations are ousted for what are sometimes just clumsy mistakes. I think those prose descriptions are actually most of, I think all of them are referring to specific things. I don't know the details of all of them, but some of them are things we've talked about on the show. So one yeah, of them, the, is, oh, good. Yeah, right? I mean, am I new, reading that right? A, we haven't talked about this other than we were going to talk about it. Yeah, other than that we're both fired up about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was a New York Times piece breaking down some of this and that did yeah. a little investigation about it. That. And like one of the things it specifically refers to is the is what just happened at the National Book Critics Circle, right. where like, folks are very loudly and vocally being criticized for not wanting to support Black Lives Matter and for saying that white supremacy doesn't exist. And some of the folks in this Harper's letter are not saying it, but that is absolutely one of the things that they're reacting to here is like, oh, those guys shouldn't lose their jobs or they shouldn't lose their their board position. Mm -hmm. Um, Um, Higher up in that same paragraph you were reading from, they're saying an intolerance of opposing views, a vogue for public shaming and ostracism, and the tendency to dissolve complex policy issues on blind, blinding moral certainty. Um, we uphold the value of robust and even caustic counter speech from all quarters, but it's now all too common to hear calls for swift and severe, severe retribution in response to perceived transgressions of speech and thought. Like, you could close read that until the cows come home, but... Yeah, it fundamentally reads to me as these folks, some of them at least saying, we want to be able to say whatever we want to say out loud about other groups of people that we might not be members of or even have association with and be allowed to say those things without any kind of punishment because we are writers and our art is important. And art is about free speech. Mm-hmm. And if you don't let me make my art about anything I want, you're censoring me, which like they're conflating a bunch of things here. Like no one said you can't write your book. Like no one said you can't go write mm-hmm. American dirt. What they have said is we don't want to spend money on this book yeah. or give platform to this book. Like no one's and actual And we'd like to persuade other speech. people not to buy the book. <laughs> no, I mean, for, no, really. They right. say no persuasion. one's actual right? free yeah, speech. Yeah. Uh. Yeah, yeah. No one's actual free speech is being threatened here. But these writers who have come under fire for making statements that are biased or bigoted in some way don't like that their pocketbooks and their careers and reputations are being impacted by it. And to that, I have to say, like, tough. Yeah. You know, like, the validity of a black life or a trans life or any human life, no matter that person's identity on any vector, should not be a question of political debate. And the fact that it is a question of political debate highlights many of the things that are wrong in this country and in our society. And for writers to think that their 
art or their right to like write it write it however they want and maybe get it wrong and do harm is somehow more important than advancing society to a place that acknowledges the full humanity and autonomy of all people is just not something I have time for. Like, this is ridiculous. It's yeah, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, there's there's a part of this argument that at one time I would have been much more sympathetic for as a much younger person. This is, Look, I used to teach writing and rhetoric, and so this is the kind of thing you used to see all the time, this particular kind of argument about, like, it's almost a symbolic logic kind of argument. Well, like, well, if you're supposed to be so tolerant, why aren't you tolerating my intolerance? And that brings us to a very important idea I think, in liberal discourse, which is called Popper's Paradox, which is the only thing a tolerant society cannot tolerate is intolerance. Because mm -hmm. if you tolerate intolerance, that tsunami will overtake liberal society. It just, it just will. The intolerant will just abuse that angle again and again and again. So people ask us on this show, this, is ha this happened, mm -hmm. I don't know, it happens every now and again. I, you know, it's, it's about book banning. You get this email every now and again. Say, well, I assume when um, a book by someone on the right is banned in a library, you're going to be as vociferous in your, you know, condemnation of that. And I was like, well, I think we probably would be, but here's the thing. Those books tend not to be about tolerance. The only thing I'm intolerant of, the only thing I think in liberal society we should be intolerant of is intolerant itself. That's the line in the sand. And that's what these moves we've seen recently. Tom Cotton getting an op-ed in the New York Times to say bring in the police to bust up the protesters is intolerance as its core. It is bringing in the military to intervene in a space with tens of thousands of people, black people especially, trans people are out there on the front lines all the time doing this stuff, putting their bodies on the line. And the New York Times gave space for someone to say, we need to quell that with military. That, to me, is, if you ever need a clear example of, of when you need to invoke Popper's paradox, is that, you know what, mm -hmm. we need to be tolerant of all things, save that which calls for intolerance, because it will erode and destroy the underpinnings of everything else, at least I value, in, in a liberal democracy. And yeah. I think they don't see that. I, I, I think this, this kind of person doesn't understand... That it, that is more important than free freedom of speech is not a goal in itself. It's a means to something else. And the means to that thing is justice. The means to that mm -hmm. thing is freedom. And the means to that thing is opportunity. It's only a conduit. It's not an end in itself. So uh, anything, that, anything that it would serve that is not served by it is up for debate in my term. But that you cannot say, for example, and this is, you know, we're getting to stuff we, we do, we, we're doing ourselves on the side about not covering she who shall not be named and mm -hmm. her anti-trans views is, I'm just not going to tolerate intolerance. Don't have to. We're not going to do it. It's, that's, and her name is one of the signatories here. And I really don't want to get into sort of adjudicating, going line by line, all the people on it. You can read it. You can make sides for yourself. It is not, and I think this is important, it's not all old white dudes. That would be an easy critique to make against this. This is about power is really what this is about, that these mm -hmm. people yeah. have power and they're feeling it threatened and they don't think it's fair, they don't think it's right, and they're afraid. And I think some of that fear is justified, but sometimes you're afraid for good reasons because you're doing something bad and dangerous and wrong and you're afraid of getting caught out. Yeah, I think, I mean, to paraphrase the quote that I've seen attributed to many people all over the internet recently, when you're used to having yeah. privilege, other people getting access to privilege and like really what increasing equality looks like feels like oppression. And these folks feel like they're being oppressed by the fact that other voices and other perspectives are being valued and lifted up and amplified, especially in a way that critiques yeah. things that these people have said. And like, not for nothing, 
I think it does matter that you said that a, a younger version of yourself would have mm-hmm. bought into this argument more. And I can definitely see shades of my younger self in this as well. It's interesting that a lot of the folks who have signed this list are not on that end of things. They're on the older end of yeah. things. And I do think there's a big, there's a cultural gap between artists who pay attention to the internet and understand that the internet is not like a separate thing. The internet is where people in our culture live today and where culture is developed and pushed forward today. And the artists who don't understand that, the writers who don't understand that, the musicians who don't understand that, the actors who don't understand that, like you see it everywhere if you're looking at art right off like oh yeah i mean tina fey did it about the internet years ago like oh well i don't have to take this criticism about my how my feminism is incomplete or not intersectional enough because those are just people on the internet like no these are people this is where we do our work today and you know like margaret atwood is on this list margaret atwood has been widely criticized for the lack of acknowledgement of the existence of black people (laughs) in a lot of her work and not to mention not evolving on other things like other important questions about equality that like if you don't pay attention and you're not coming along with the movement you end up thinking that you're being threatened because other people are being lifted up and it does matter that these are people who have been around a while they have established careers they're they have chosen to dismiss in many ways criticism that's been leveled at them and this is the consequence (laughs) like now you're just airing it out for everyone and and i think i like i also want to know like what did you think you were accomplishing when you signed this letter like what was going to happen well i think they thought (laughs) like i've seen arguments like this a million times i think they thought this was um this is the side of reasonableness this is the side Mm. of the humanities this is the side of decorum and level-headedness Right. This is the side of if you got tenure at mm. NYU, this is the kind of thing you believe. And there's a lot of good reasons to get tenure and it's around for a long time. And without again, just like I said, I don't want to adjudicate the individual names, but I, yeah. I, I'm, I don't throw I don't throw everyone into the same pot here because I don't think it's fair. But yeah. this kind of argument, if it was just signed by Salman Rushdie, whose name is on there, feels way different. Because you know what? Salman Rushdie has a thought well out on him. Like he's seen right. from being persecuted by regimes right so like that's different than some of the other like why is what is john banville well, worried about i i just don't right, get like i don't like, get that specific sort of thing but like by the same token salman rushdie has been persecuted by regimes well that's what i'm saying <laughs> like he knows from being persecuted by regimes and i think he is probably more attuned to the slippery slope kind of angle mm. like to think to, i also don't want to i don't i don't agree with the letter but i also don't want to throw out the thing you and I did with annotated in George Orwell and George Orwell saying, you know, authoritarianism can come from the left too. So you do want to be wary about authoritarianism that can come from any sides, but this ain't it. Like this is a slippery yeah. soap. Argument. Well, if we go down this way, we're going to be chopping people's heads off. Like we did the Bastille. It's like, well, okay. Yeah, I guess if you, if you take it to a logical, absurd extreme, you can do that to most any arguments. I guess I want to put this in the show notes. Cause I think it's very helpful to think about, um, for me, there's this, um, it was a speech that Haruki Murakami gave 10 or 15 years ago called The Egg in the Wall. Um, and he said, in any situation that involves power, some, that one side is the egg and one side is the wall. And one, he's like, I'm always, I'm always going to be on the side of the egg. Maybe sometimes mm. the egg might be wrong. And the egg and wall can change. It can be a different situation. It can be different walls and different eggs. It's like, I'm always going to be on the side of the egg. 
because the wall always breaks the egg. The, the egg itself is the thing that is fragile. The egg itself is the thing that can be killed and destroyed and irrevocably damaged. And I think it's helpful in these sorts of situations to look at the logical argument, but also the performance of something like this. This is a performance of a kind of a wall, right? Mm -hmm. It's a wall of reasonableness. It's a wall of um, privilege. It's a wall of authority, you know, literary, artistic, intellectual authority. And the list of names itself, I think, is supposed to function as a kind of wall, like literally and figuratively a wall that Mm -hmm. you encounter. It's a wall of ideas. It's a wall of personalities. It's a wall of power. And um, I think it's I think it's it's cleverly put together to withstand certain kinds of arguments by having different kinds of identities and demographics included in this. So, So it's immune to a certain kind of attack well it's just all white people but that itself is a kind of wall like it's built to be to do a specific work and i think i I wonder i hope if people understood that so so the thought of this terms of are you the wall are you the egg what egg are you the wall to and i think Mm -hmm. it's very simple you are the egg to black people to black trans people to trans people to people of color to people um who don't have green cards to people who are in ICE detention centers along the border. Like, who is the egg? And I, I, that's been helpful for me to think about since I read, first read that speech of positioning myself because, because of my position, I'm the wall most of the time. I really, I'm part of the wall most of the time. And how can I not be part of the wall? How can I at least not be against the egg? Even if I, can, if, even if I can't identify with the egg, if I can't see from the egg's point of view, how can I not be the wall? And I, I would like these people to think about that in these terms. Are they the wall or are they the egg? They think they're protecting some egg. They think they're really protecting the egg of freedom of speech. But that's not a person. Those aren't bodies. That's nothing. That, that's an idea. We're talking about actual people here. Yeah. And I, I, that's an incredible and incredibly useful analogy. Um, anyway. That so, I hadn't heard before. I mean, I'm definitely going to have to find that Murakami speech. I think also that... You know, you can reject like some slippery slopes are real, yeah. but you can also reject a slippery slope argument by accepting what's at the bottom of it. And if the thing at the bottom of this slippery slope is that like a white author can no longer feel safe writing insensitive or inaccurate or harmful things about people of color in their books because they think the internet will come for them or their book sales will tank. I can accept that. Oh, yeah. I can I, accept, do you think that's the end of Slippery like, Slope? I guess I was reading the end of the Slippery I mean, Slope as being much I, worse than that. Being well, like I think, Mao's China I mean, I, or something else like that. I mean, I think that the folks who signed this letter think that the bottom of the Slippery Slope is Mao's China. Oh. I think the actual bottom of the Slippery Slope is more like these people's careers are impacted in some meaningful way. And if they don't, if they don't, you know, catch up. Yeah. And I'm fine if that's the bottom of the slope. I think that's what it actually is. Like yeah. the thing they're actually worried about or one of the things they're actually worried about that they're not acknowledging is I will be impacted by this. My career, my reputation, my standing in my artistic community are going to be harmed because I want to keep being able to say things the way that I've said them. And I can see other people who are doing that are being punished. And let's make a free speech argument instead of actually talking about the fact that what I'm afraid of is losing my power in my career. My last thing, and this may not be fair, um, it's personal because it's a story I cared about after having done one for Annotated 2, Two Shall Say Annotated today. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Where where was this letter 
when drag queens were being met with guns <laughs> at libraries. No, I'm serious. Where was it? No, no, I'm, Jonathan a, I'm Newman agreeing. In Greenville, like, South Carolina was fired like, for trying to, to host drag. Like, where were you? Where were you when the hate you give was being was being challenged by police? You, you we've talked about these mm-hmm. stories all. There's no fucking letter in Harper's for that stuff. When yeah, when the, the, when a <laughs> when a white editor at the New York Times gets fired or steps down or is pressured to resign because maybe we shouldn't have Tom Cotton saying bring in the police to break up peaceful protests. That now we're all bothered. J.K. Rowling, who's got a billion dollars in her name, people are like, "Well, maybe I'm not going to buy these books anymore." Oh my God, we need to organize and do something about this. I, you're the wall, man. You're the wall. Where are the yeah, edges the, you're going to stand up for? Yeah, the timing of this has to be interrogated. Yeah, <laughs> like we are in the middle, like the middle of not only a global pandemic but a huge reckoning about race in this country, and many of the types of speech that this letter attempts to protect are types of speech that are dangerous and harmful to people of color and to other marginalized communities. And like, this is the moment that you decided that it's you wild. need to it's wild to me. Defend it. Like wild. it's very revealing yeah. <laughs> and not for nothing. Um, I didn't have to go look it up because Vita published it. I knew Harper's mm. uh, historically <laughs> terrible showing in the Vita count, like historically tw- two to one men to women in the literary publication. Where was this letter when you were being called out for 10 years about gender alone, gender alone mm-hmm. in the coverage of your pages? That that was all right. But now uh, we got we got to write something about this. And I, again, there's a part of me that's sympathetic to thinking that the left is immune from getting things wrong. I'm very sympathetic to that because that hasn't been historically accurate. And I think there is a version of events that can play out. I don't think it's it's like when those scientists were called in front of Congress say, well, you know, technically there's a chance the large hadron collider will create a black hole and end life is and they're like, "Well, <laughs> wait a minute. What? Well, you have to acknowledge, I mean, if you're a reasonable person, you can acknowledge that that is one a very very small. I I don't want to throw out all possible futures um for the case of making a stand. I you know, we've seen this played out in in mm-hmm. Russia and other places where a leftist regime comes out and just does all the same crap under a different banner than the the right-wing regime has done. But that's not what this is about. I just don't think that's what this is about. That's not what any No. You're the system. You're the wall. You're the wall here, man. And, you know, I, I guess um, just looking at myself, there's not a lot of names I was super surprised to see here, right? I mean, I, there's mm. all, a lot of names I don't know. I guess some I was more disappointed than others. I'm not myself taking books um, just because your name is on this list. I think it's... I think it's as naive and obtuse and blind. And there's, I think it's not a surprise that the, a lot of these people's comma after the name is um, university. Like there's a reason we call it the ivory tower, um, mm-hmm. th- that that separation has strengths and weaknesses. And I think there's a particular weakness of it. Um, I encourage you to read the letter, think about it. Um, I'll put the link to the egg in the wall um, uh, essay, uh, you know, speech um, that Murakami gave, which also was given under fraught circumstances, where he went to Jerusalem at a time when people were saying he shouldn't because of things that were happening in Gaza. Um, and I think that he, he addresses that context a little bit, um, but he, he, he comes at it with an artistic mind and a metaphorical mind. Not surprisingly, my mind likes that metaphor, because I like to think mm-hmm. anal- analogy and metaphor. Um, but I think that's helpful. So maybe, maybe if, you're, if you're wondering about some intellectual tools to combat this, that on its logical level, not just on its sort of um, specific level, Popper's Paradox and the Egg in the Wall. Those two things to me have stood me in good stead, and, and I hope you might find them useful in thinking about these things, so especially if you're... I'm sure there's some people out here that may be sympathetic to this argument. 
Um, and, th- and maybe if we can reframe that a little bit differently and see, you know, what the, the meta consequences of those things are, I, I think that's important to do. Yeah, I agree. I think often about the Toni Morrison framing of like the when you get when you have power, the function of your power is to give others power. When you have freedom, the function is to give others freedom. And that's a similar but not the same. I I really like this egg in the wall Mm. um, framework. I find myself like often trying to think about in a moment like this or reading a letter like this, like who has the power and does this move Mm-hmm. increase the number of people who have access to power or is it protecting a small group of people yeah. who have power yeah all right well that's our show um you can find show notes uh to this and all back episodes of the book riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen you can choose the email podcast at bookriot.com uh thanks to our sponsors this week for for supporting what we do uh it's you know you need support to do these sorts of things i think that that that's mm-hmm. worth talking about at some point as well um rebecca We'll talk to you. Talk to you next week. Trump books will be out. So here you <laughs> go. You think the Bolton book week one sales lower or higher than um, the world is not enough? Oh. The James Bond title of this. What is this book <laughs> called again? <laughs> Too, Too much, much is never, never enough. enough. <laughs> I can't, I can't do it. I cannot keep it straight. Over or under Bolton first week print sales. That's the only one I'll know for sure for publishers. I'm going to go over. I think Trump. I think Mary Trump is juicier. It, it is. It is um, dishier. Right, like in a yeah, very humane yeah. kind of people magazine kind of a way. I can see that as being attractive. Yeah. All right. We'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Bye.